You're listening to Beneath the Skin, the podcast about the history of everything told through the history of tattoos. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Lodder. I'm here on my own again this week, a solo uh, episode. Uh, Tom and I have um, had both had really crazy busy uh, few weeks of all kinds of reasons. So um, just to make sure we're getting stuff out on the feed and because this was actually a topic uh, that I did some work on myself this week and um, wanted to basically get out to you guys on the podcast um, as quickly as I could, um, we decided to record a solo episode. So um, you've just got me on my own this week. Uh, I know some people really like these episodes, some people don't like them so much. Um, But yeah, uh, hopefully this will be interesting to you. Um, Essentially, what I want to talk about today is the story of one of the characters in my book. Um, In fact, I'm going to read, as I did with the um, uh, Picasso chapter, I'm going to read the chapter of the book. Um, some of you have already read the book, some of you won't, but I'm going to read the chapter. But then at the end, I'm going to basically reveal some new information because I was able to um, finish, finally finish, some some new um, records being digitised and some, uh, basically I made, a, I made a discovery in the archives, um, in, the, in the online archives, which allowed me to join up some dots and to finish a story that I wasn't able to finish in the hardback version of the book. It is going to be now, I am going to have a chance to write this final chapter up, final chapter of the chapter, if you like, in the paperback version of the book that's coming out in uh, later this year. Um, so yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm, it's a really personal one for me too, because um, this story is one that I has captivated me for such a long time. And as I'll circle back to at the end, it's uh, the, the, the main protagonist of it is someone who I've I felt I've come to know in a strange way, even though um, she well I now know I didn't know recent, until recently, but I now know that she died in the nineteen fifties. Um, but I, I I felt very um, initially when I learned her story, as you'll hear in the book, I I was just amused by her, and then as for the uh, for painted people, I wanted to um, I wanted to find out more about her, and, and that led me to some really dark places in terms of what her, her life story was and in terms of what her life story indicated about the lives of many other young women um, around the same time. And then she sort of disappeared from the records and I'll explain why that happened now. And now I know why she did. And I, I always sort of wondered what happened to her. And the, the chapter in the book ends on a bit of a sad note, um, but I now can give her something of a happy ending. And, and it's a it's, it's an amazingly wild ending, actually, to her life story, beautifully fitting. Um, so, yeah, the story I'm going to be telling you today, uh, as some of you who've read the book will already know, is um, is the story of Madeline Altman. Um, if you've already read the book, you can skip forward probably about 35 minutes or something um, to get to the new material. Um, uh, those of you who've got the audio book, you may have even heard someone read this who wasn't me. So um, you may enjoy hearing this in my own voice. <laughs> Okay, so this is chapter 13 of Painted People. I just love Sailor Boys, Madeline Altman, 1906. Um, Part of me thinks I should be doing a kind of sassy New York, Brooklyn accent, but I'm not going to do that. It's just offensive. Um, When he found Madeline, Agent King noticed that her left arm was much swollen and wrapped in a bandage. He asked her what the trouble was. Why, don't you know? asked Madeline, shifting her gum from right to left sides. I'm having New York Pete tattoo me arms and chest. Detroit Free Press, 15th of September, 1906. Gum-chewing teenager Madeline Altman was hauled before the Brooklyn police courts on 14th of September, 1906. 
She'd been picked up on the Bowery, the notorious street in Manhattan, packed with beer halls, flop houses, brothels, pawn shops and theatres, which had long served as a hub of vice, gambling and booze. Described in one prurient newspaper account as a pretty and exceptionally well-developed for her age, Madeline was sassy, smart-mouthed, streetwise, young girl of 15, who was found in the company of a couple of 'er ne'er-do-wells sailors on shore leave from a stint aboard President Roosevelt's yacht. She'd run away from her middle-class home some three weeks earlier, and her parents were desperate to find her. When agents from the New York Society's Prevention for the Cruelty of Children picked her up, a search found her pockets stuffed full to bursting with photographs of amorous Navy men and scores of love letters. Most strikingly, her left arm was swollen and wrapped in a cloth bandage. Peeling away, the sodden cloth revealed a freshly tattooed design of a sailor holding an American flag proudly inscribed into her young skin. Above his head was a heart, starkly inked in red. Further inspection showed she clearly spent much of the time on the lam in tattoo studios, as well as the flag-waving seamen. Her back was covered with a large battleship. Both her arms were tattooed from elbow to wrist with daggers and other naval designs. And on her chest, not yet healed, was another warship and an eagle. Proudly, she also sported a self-portrait of sorts, a girl dressed in sailor togs alongside her own initials, M.A. In Madeline's plight, age-old worries about the licentiousness of sailors, the sexual immorality of young women, the strict policing of gender norms and the vulnerability of children, especially of girls, intersect, and the New York press were predictably captivated by her story for some days. Several takes on the tale emerge in the newspaper coverage, each revealing a different mode of moral panic amongst America's chattering classes. In particular, Madeline's use of tattoos to attract the attentions of sailors predominates. It's unclear in the various tellings if she got tattooed in order to meet sailors, or if her tattoos were the after-effects of a series of particularly rambunctious encounters, though in one interview she does claim she hoped her new designs would help her garner some attention. All the girls are getting it done, she told the New York Times reporter. It's getting so the sailors won't look at you if you ain't got some tattoos on you. Another angle on the story is Madeline's refusal to conform to the expectations placed on girls and young women at the time. In some reports, Madeline is said to have been using tattooing in a vain attempt to go undercover as a boy so as to be able to enlist in the Navy. She was not just using tattoos to attract sailors, um, but actively trying to become one. Even in the court hearing, she was wearing a sailor's cap perched on her head and had her sleeves rolled up, showing off her new tattoos. And as she left court, she turned to assembled reporters and exclaimed, Ah, I wish I was a boy. If I was, I bet your boots I'd be enlisted in the Navy. But the sailors are all right, they are. I just love sailor boys. By contrast, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle painted the story as a cautionary tale of fashionable fads gone too far. Mania to be tattooed may cost Madeline dear, the headline screamed. Brooklyn girl who ran away from home found in shocking condition. Blood poisoning may ensue. The girl found covered with the showy emblems sought after by sailors. Her right arm, tattooed with anchors, a torpedo boat and a lighthouse, was apparently in such bad condition that a doctor testified to her urgent need for hospital attention. In the pages of the Standard Union, she was portrayed sympathetically as a vulnerable juvenile victim of three predatory tattooists, all of whom were charged with impairing the health of a child and had apparently faced numerous prior complaints of, as the Union put it, disfiguring children. The tattooing of children in the United States has clearly been going on for some time, perhaps even as long as tattooing had been a recognisable profession in America. In a museum store in Scotland, there survives a particularly vivid illustration of this phenomenon in the form of four large pieces of preserved skin from a young Irish-American man acquired in 1896. 
Each piece taken from his back and front is completely covered in red and black and nautical patriotic designs, including a ship, a Liberty Bell, and a portrait of George Washington, alongside a copy of a cherub from Raphael's Sistine Chapel Madonna. The man who died at the age of 29 had, according to contemporaneous report by curious surgeons, been quite operated on by his brother when a boy from four to seven years of age, and the process of tattooing had occupied nearly three years. The whole surface of the skin, except the face, hands, soles of the feet, and front of the pelvis, was covered with the most artistically executed designs in red and black, in which several Irish and American emblems were introduced. If the reported dates are correct, this child began to be tattooed in the early 1870s, coinciding with the moment German immigrant Martin Hildebrandt started to appear regularly in the New York press as the first recognisably full-time professional tattooer in the Western world. Um, quick aside on that story, I, I discovered that story during COVID. Um, I came across that report from the um, uh, an old medical journal where, where this skin was presented by surgeons at the University of Edinburgh. And, um, you know, I, I work on this stuff, have for a long time. I'd never heard of this particular specimen. My friend, Gemma Angel, who's an expert in the history of tattooed specimens, um, did, hadn't heard of it either. So we both assumed it must have been lost or destroyed. So I, I wrote to the archivist at the Museum of Edinburgh and said, hey, I'm sure you, you know, I know you don't have this anymore, but um, do you have records of what happened to it? And the guy emailed me back and said, oh, actually, no, we have got it in the stores. <laughs> it wasn't catalogued. It hadn't been really noticed or looked at for anyone for um, uh, uh, over 100 years. But there it was just sitting there. And uh, and the guy kindly sent me some phone snaps that he took <laughs> in the museum store. <laughs> kind of one of the wildest, uh, you know, moments of, of my of the research for this book was, was uncovering that particular specimen. We reproduced a picture of that in the book in black and white. And I think in the next book, there'll be a, um, there'll be a colour version of it. Um, yeah, kind of kind of mad. Okay. By the time of Madeline's adventure, eradicating the tattooing of miners in New York had already been something of an obsession of the NYSPCC for many years. Also known as the Children's Society, the organisation had been founded in 1874 at a time when the welfare of America's children was far from legislators' minds. Um, ironically, by the way, the um, NYSPCC, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children was founded after the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Indeed, it was explicitly um, inspired by it. So, um, they worked on a number of fronts to safeguard New York's youth, including running a shelter for vulnerable children, serving as lobbyists for new laws and protections, and eventually working as an extension of the city's legal apparatus to bring prosecutions against those who put children in harm's way. They quickly became a real presence in the city, striving to pr protect children who'd been neglected or abandoned, to save young girls from sex work, and to push new laws on a spectrum of issues relating to juvenile welfare, including child, child labour, the sale of alcohol and tobacco to minors, and the delivery of pornographic or otherwise obscene material by messenger boys. Not the fact that kids were working, that was fine with them, it was just that they were delivering porn was the problem. <laughs> um, as their director proudly announced in 1902, no pains and no money were spared in collecting evidence and prosecuting those shown to be offenders against the physical and moral being of these children. Tattooing re represented both a physical and a moral offence. In Madeline's case, at least in the public imagination, it entailed a risk of syphilitic infection and signalled particularly reckless form of dissolute behaviour. It also involved interaction with the so-called Jackies, the libidinous drunken sailors of the American Navy, as legendarily soaked in rum and sodomy as seafarers had been for generations. 
And so when the children of reputable parents got tattooed, the society got involved. As early as 1898, a case extraordinarily similar to Madeline's reached the courts after an officer of the society tracked down another wandering 15-year-old girl named Hannah to an appropriately disreputable hostelry on the Bowery. The young girl, the state records attest, had been known as ungovernable and wayward and keeping the company of depraved persons. She had, the records go on, furthermore been subjected to a sad story of precocious depravity. When they found her drinking with a group of sailors on shore leave, Hannah was naturally dressed in a sailor's uniform. Like Madeline, quote, her arms and breasts were extensively tattooed. Tattooing minors was not specifically illegal, but the society had ensured that rules against endangering children were on the books in New York, and they were drafted broadly enough to put the tattooing of juveniles over the edge of acceptability as far as the law was concerned. In 1902, a Bowery tattooer named Charlie Wagner had narrowly avoided punishment after extensively tattooing a young Jewish boy with designs including a crucifix and the head of Christ. Um, he basically, in uh, newspaper reports about that, said he didn't realise <laughs> that Jewish people would be up, um, weren't allowed to do that. Um, that year, there'd been such a craze for tattooing amongst the children of New York's Lower East Side that one school reported that, quote, a dozen little boys and several little girls appealed with beetles, shrimps, lobsters and butterflies crawling over their faces. The same NYSPC uh, agent who tracked down Madeline, Agent King, found that Wagner and another tattooer had been responsible. And in an echo that further lends credence to the tale of the Irish-American boy tattooed by his brother, Wagner and his accomplice were apparently practising their skills on children so as to be able to work more skillfully on their adult customers. Despite the expert testimony of a rival tattooer, Elmer Getchell, who'd argued that true professionals would not stoop to tattooing children who lacked the capacity to wisely choose a design that would be on their bodies for life, Wagner preached in ignorance of the law and of Jewish customs and was issued with a stern warning. However, it seems he did not heed the warning seriously enough, and in 1906, he was sentenced to 20 days imprisonment for tattooing an 11-year-old boy just two months before Madeline's case was brought to court. The three tattoo artists accused of disfiguring Madeline also worked at various shops in and around the Bowery. William R. Davis worked at the back of a saloon on the Bowery itself. Um, he claimed to have tattooed so many young girls in recent weeks he could not specifically remember Madeline. Peter Farley, Tattoo Pete, also went by New York Pete, and tattooed at 5 Chatham Square at the southern end of the Bowery. And Samuel O'Reilly, at the time of his arrest, was working down the street on Chatham Square at number 11. On the basis of Madeline's testimony and the inarguable permanent evidence on her arms, each man was charged with endangering the health, life or morals of a minor. As discussed in the previous chapter, O'Reilly in particular is not just some backroom scratcher, but an important pivotal figure in the history of American tattooing, having held the first patent in the world for an electric tattooing machine. It was he who hosted Hori Toyo in New York, and his time working at both number 5 and number 11, Chatham Square, is rightly spoke, spoken of as a halcyon moment for early American tattooing. He is regarded as one of the founding fathers of the modern tattoo industry, but his role in this debacle clearly illustrates just how common the tattooing of minors had become in New York around the turn of the century, no matter what Elmer Getchell had testified in court a few years earlier. Getchell himself had tattooed at 11 Chatham Square, and it's worth noting he'd been a bitter feud with O'Reilly over rival claims to the invention of the tattoo machine in the 1880s. Given that Wagner, against whom Getchell had testified, was Riley's pupil, one has to take his claims of professional superiority with at least a small pinch of salt. Despite Getchell's assessment of Wagner's abilities, following his incarceration, Charlie also went on to become one of the most fated American tattoo artists in the pantheon of early American tattooing. 
And so, yeah, the judge uh, at the hearing against the three men in Madeline's case asserted that the court was determined to put a stop to this heinous practice of disfiguring young girls. Davis and Farley each served 10 days in the tombs jail. O'Reilly escaped imprisonment, paying a $25 fine. As for Madeline, following her tattooer's conviction, she was sent to an infamous Protestant correctional institution called the House of Mercy to be reformed. As the decision was handed down, she wept openly, begging the judge that she'd be allowed to stay with her mother. Her father Jacob was persuaded by the judge's order, hoping it would finally cure her of her sea madness once and for all. The House of Mercy was described in a contemporaneous report on the sex trade in New York as a, quote, preventative institution, tasked with, quote, taking girls, some of them very young, who are subject to bad influences, who are incorrigible, who for various reasons find difficulty in their home life. Given the moral climate of the time, such incorrigibility was often extraordinarily minor by modern standards and resulted in the incarceration of young girls for transgressions as minor as underage drinking and dancing. It was large, imposing building of austere grey stone, separated from the city by tangles of trees. It had more of the air of a prison than an institution of care. Rooms and windows were barred by iron gratings. The recreation yard, open to girls who'd behaved appropriately once they arrived, was surrounded by an imposing 15-foot fence, and the entire building was guarded from visitors by tall railings and a heavy wooden door. In 1910, it provided home to 107 young women, including 23 girls found to have been sex working. As a part of wider network of religious and secular missions in New York at the time, the house's work mirrored the NYSPCC's care for the physical and moral health of young women, quote, raising the tone of conversation in places where girls assemble and work, lectures on sex hygiene are given, wholesome recreation is encouraged, and higher ideals of life cultivated. And yet, as had been the case with such institutions elsewhere, the well-meaning intentions often collided with the culture of mismanagement, neglect, and cruelty. What precisely happened to Madeline at the House of Mercy is not known. It is unlikely, though, that her time there was uh, a happy one. Decades of reports detail miserable conditions, including the humiliation of girls by nuns at the house. In 1905, um, Annie Sigalov, who had been picked up at a dance hall in Coney Island, age 18, and sent to the house for three years, spoke of abuse and the withdrawal of food and having had her head shaved, as well as having been banned from contacting her parents. The usefulness, of, the usefulness of head shaving as a disciplinary tool was boasted about by the sisters, one of whom had told a reporter that, quote, we find that girls do not like to lose their hair and that fear of having it cut off tends to make them obedient. That's uh, fucking horrific. I'm sorry. Um, gagging too was routine. In November 1907, during or only shortly after Madeline's period of incarceration, a teacher called Josephine Hall shot herself in her head in the quarters, having been despondent of late. Miss Hall left a letter addressed to the diocese, apparently intended to be mailed after her death. In summer of 1905, one year before Madeline arrived, Isabel Cowan, a teenager of the same age, was picked up by the society after having absconded from custody. She'd been sleeping rough in Central Park, malnourished, dishevelled and surviving only on the discarded food scraps left by picnickers. She told a judge she'd rather live in the park than at the House of Mercy. In 1915, resident girls started to riot in protest at the poor conditions and the exorable quality of quantity of food. By 1920, the house had closed amid further reports of shackling and underfeeding. And in 1933, as it was about to be pulled down, a New Yorker writer documented chilling graffiti scrawled on its walls, including, I wish I was dead, God help me get out of here, and I was put in this house of mercy for nothing. As for Madeline... After her release from the grim horrors of mercy, her life did take on some form of normalcy, albeit briefly. 
1908, she married Frederick Perry Dickinson Jr., the eldest son of an influential and wealthy Texas family involved in metal smelting. In what might have been a happy ending to this tale, Fred was indeed a sailor boy, a naval reserve who'd served since in the yards at Virginia and Brooklyn, perhaps alongside Madeline's brother Herman, who'd also gone to sea, and with whom Madeline and Fred had lived shortly after their marriage. They were together for more than a decade until at least 1920, when the federal census records the young couple was living with Fred's well-to-do parents in El Paso. By late 1922, however, Fred was dating another woman, and by 1923 he'd married her. Unlike his marriage to Madeline, which had gone unremarked in the gossipy society pages of the local newspapers, which frequently reported on even simple gatherings of these pioneer residents who made up the Dickinson family, Fred's marriage to his new wife Vera was hailed as a great occasion on the front pages. No mention was ever made of his previous wife. In a final ignominy for Madeline's dreams of everlasting love with a dashing sailor, Fred went on to a decade-long career in the Navy and was ultimately buried at Fort Bliss, El Paso's military cemetery. He died relatively young, aged just 49, infected with syphilis. There seems to be no clear trace of our Madeline Altman or Madeline Dickinson in either New York or El Paso thereafter. Whatever her fate, it seems she was never fully embraced into the Dickinson's family life. It seems wayward, tough, tattooed kid Madeline Altman wasn't a neat fit in the drawing rooms of 1920s Texas and that her sailor boy didn't love her as much as she did him. Perhaps the mania to be tattooed finally did cost her dear in the end. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting, niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saniderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free 
and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saladerm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saladerm products or for more information. That was uh, that was where um, the story of Madeleine Altman ended for me. Um, uh, I never found a picture of her. Funnily enough, you know, I, not even I, the book includes an illustration um, of a young woman being tattooed by a, a peg-legged sailor. That's from around the time of the case of that other girl, um, Hannah, who I mentioned. Um, I couldn't find a picture or even a drawing of Madeleine, even a cartoon. Um, I'm uh, frustratingly one of at least one of the reports mentioned that her family had a photo of her in their home with her wearing a sailor uniform, but um, I'd never basically been able to find one. Um, so I never knew what she looked like. As I said, she disappeared um, after this separation from uh, from Fred, and it was all very sad, you know. Um, some you know her her love story hadn't worked out and 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 it was really clear just from sort of reading between the lines that this this posh family this wealthy family in texas um didn't really want to have much to do with her and and so yeah there there the trail went cold and i i tried and tried and tried as hard as i could to to piece together any records um but unfortunately you know dickinson's quite a common surname there were also a couple of other madeline altmans in america at the time um one of whom even was from the state of New York, from Buffalo, who who made tracing her story with any certainty just sort of impossible. Um, however, um, as I promised you at the beginning, um, we're going to give the, her story her happy ending finally. So basically last week, um, it was my mum's birthday and uh, we were out for dinner and we were talking about her. She was 76 years old and she was uh, talking about... Um, her life and, 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 and things. And we were talking, I was talking to her about ancestry and ancestry.co.uk and, and the and genealogy research and find my past and all those resources that I use for researching genealogies of people. And, um, she's like, Oh, can you find, see if there's anything on, on our family? And I, ha- and I had found some stuff on our family before, but I just sort of, you know, dropped in and was showing her some stuff over dinner. And then, um, when I got home that night, I, I was like, Oh, I wonder if anything if I can, you know, this, this is what happens. ADHD brain combined with, um, re, you know, a research career. I, I have a, a long list of things I'd like to know um, about the history of tattooing that I haven't yet been able to figure out. And the, the fate of Madeline Altman is probably the top of the list, really has been top of the list for a very, very long time. And so I was like, oh, you know, while I'm, while I'm here thinking about ancestry, I wonder if anything new's come up with Madeline. And, um, whether or whether it's a newly digitized record or something I missed before, I think probably a mix of both. I finally found a plausible marriage record for a Madeline Altman. Um, uh, and it was listed that this woman called Madeline Altman had married someone called Jerome B. Ward on December the 1st, 1929. Um, now, no guarantee, of course, that this Madeline Altman is our Madeline Altman. Um, so I wasn't initially like 100% convinced it was her. But then um, I managed to find uh, basically a, a record of this Madeline later than Ward. 
Um, and basically her date of birth and the birthplace of her parents on her death certificate from 1953 uh, matched our Madeline entirely from records I'd already found. So this is definitely, so So f- yes, I found our Madeline Altman. She, she had become Madeline Ward and she was married to this guy called Jerome B. Ward. And then this is where the story just gets wonderful and appropriate and, and exciting. Um, so Jerome uh, Bonaparte Ward, who went by the name of Blackjack, was a cowboy. Now, not just a cowboy. He was what's called a drugstore cowboy. Now, drugstore cowboys, um, I've heard that term before. I didn't quite know what, really what it meant. But drugstore cowboys were basically cowboys working uh, you know, during the um, uh, Great Depression uh, in the 1930s, who sought to get extra work, um, certainly at the end of the 1930s, um, by um, appearing in movies, cowboy movies and westerns. So they would hang out at a drugstore, uh, this cafe called the Roundup Cafe, um, uh, was next door, and then there was this this drugstore, and the drugstore basically had a phone, like had a telephone, and the guy that owned the drugstore allowed the cowboys that hung out there to use the phone to like get work as in films. So drugstore cowboys were these guys that worked as extras on cowboy movies. So they they would do a lot of the horse riding, a lot of the stunts. Uh, they do they work with the main actors, and yeah, and 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 blackjack um, was one of these guys. And like instantly, you're like, of course, Madeline like got with a cowboy, right? Like the the, the posh sailor boy didn't really work out, but like, what kind of man do we imagine? young wayward exciting madeline to get with well like this cowboy guy like absolutely brilliant um so then i found a photo of madeline uh in older age she was then by this point going by the nickname mickey so again this is why i could never find her because she was from the 1920s uh late 1920s onwards for the rest of her life mickey ward not Madeline Altman or Madeline Dickinson, but Mickey Ward. And Mickey Ward, there's some amazing photographs of her in the archives because in an amazing, amazing twist, um, Black Jack murdered someone or at least shot someone in self-defense. <laughs> Basically, um, this became a huge kind of like amazing you can imagine right like it's 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 cowboys it's real life basically there was a shootout these guy this guy uh blackjack he was having a, an argument with um one of his co-stars um and essentially like yeah um it, uh, it turned into a it turned into a um a, a sort of shootout the okay corral this guy johnny tyak right who was another one of these drugstore cowboys Apparently he was kind of bad mouthing. Um, one of the stories that I found said that he was hitting on Madeline uh, and, you know, kind of trying to trying to hit on Madeline. Another one was that um, he'd, he'd been annoyed that um, Blackjack hadn't gone to visit him when he was in prison. Like it's a whole kind of, you know, one of these stories, but really, really brilliantly, um, for the jury, they staged a recreation and Madeline like plays a role in the recreation. Mickey plays a role in the recreation and she turns up to the trial every single day. Um, 
she is described basically um, as stern, as you know, um, as as loyal. She cries at the end of the at the end of the story. She she gives him a hug as he's acquitted and um and basically yeah just says um yeah just says like this is you know this is this is this is just the best result um yeah like i think when i was imagining what would ha- what would happen to madeline i i really hoped she'd found someone who was her her match including like this guy like he was clearly prone to some violent outbursts like after this after this impulsive shooting of one of his fellow cowboys he also there's a photo photos of him being arrested for pulling a machete on someone in a bar like he was clearly a, a bastard but they were they were together um for the rest of their lives um he died shortly after she did but um like yeah the, the photos of them kissing at the trial is just so beautiful um and at the greatest ignominy, I think, or the greatest twist here is that one of those photos was published, uh, I checked, on the front page of a newspaper in El Paso. So I wonder, this is like in the 1940s, I wonder if 20 years after they kicked her out, after they she, she'd divorced or she'd been divorced by their child, whether the Dickinson family saw this cowboy wife. She's described in one of the um, reports as a former cowgirl herself. <laughs> Um, I wonder if they looked and saw and thought, wait a minute, that Mickey Ward looks familiar. That Mickey Ward looks familiar. Um, the tr- I mean, I really want this to be a movie, right? Because Madeline's story has these acts, right? It has the it has the bored life growing up in, in Brooklyn. It has the excitement of getting tattooed. It has the time in the House of Mercy. It has the sadness of her time in Texas. And it has this amazing last act of living with a swashbuckling cowboy character called Black Jack, who, um, you know, shot a man to death for her honor, potentially. Um, the, the, there's so many good lines in the descriptions of the trial. There's, there's a guy called Yukon Jack, Yukon Jake, who is one of the other pards, they call him. It's because his, his pards, his partners came to support him because they didn't like the other guy either. Um, the, 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 the judge in the, in the case, um, is interviewing Yukon Jake, who's a witness to the shooting. And he says, did you know, did you know the deceased? And he said, I didn't know him by that name. <laughs> so he thought the deceased was some kind of badass nickname for this guy. Um, Johnny Tyke, who got, who got shot. Um, like the, 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 the press had a, had a good laugh at his expense on that one. Um, I just think, you know, and it's funny because, and I, I need to, when, I, when I've published this in the paperback, I'm, I'll update the Blackjack's Wikipedia page because this guy, Blackjack, along with a couple of other these drugstore cowboys, is a bit sort of famous in the, you know, if you're a Western nerd, these guys are very well regarded because they're, they're real life cowboys. They're, they're hard bastards, but they also have this charisma and this, this swagger about them that a lot of the, 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 the cinematic Western actors base their characters on, right? And, um, and so like Blackjack Ward is himself, um, quite well known in the right circles, you know, um, he's got his own Wikipedia page. Um, he was in over 160 cowboy movies. Um, 
and and yeah, and this story of him um, of him shooting uh, someone shooting Tyke is is exactly the you know it's a kind of piece of Hollywood legend, right? It's a piece of Hollywood legend. In fact, um, this part now of of California gets called Gower Gulch, um, this corner of, of of Gower Street because of you know because of the shooting. Right, the shooting becomes this kind of uh, you know turns the street in Hollywood into this real life location of cowboy shootouts. Um, so very very famous, um, very very famous episode in the history of Hollywood. This shooting, and it's just beautiful and brilliant to me that um, Madeline Altman, Madeline Ward, Mickey Ward gets to be part of this story. And what better person? you know, for her than someone who's so wild and so romantic and so exciting and so uncowed and so brave and so, yeah, like, you know, I, I feel very happy as I wrote this on Instagram, if someone saw that, I, I, I was very happy to look into her eyes um, finally to see those photos and um, to, to find that, you know, she, a rebellious, risk-taking weirdo who shunned the conventions of polite society found someone like herself you know found someone uh who didn't constrain her um i don't think she had children so um sadly her story uh her family story seems to end there um i also found any photos of her tattoos all of the photos of her at the court she's dressed very respectfully she does have a fairly low neckline you know an open neckline on her coat and dress which shows that uh, you know, her chest isn't completely covered in tattoos, as far which, you know, as may have been implied by one of those um, previous uh, newspaper reports. But um, I'm just really, really happy to have found Madeline, and and I want to um, read this um, paragraph from a, a, an article, which I think would be a good end to the movie. This is from a, an article about um, Blackjack's acquittal. Judge Scott heartily concurred and praised the action of the district attorney for such a move. It's with pleasure that I dismiss this case, he said. That was the signal for a demonstration. Blackjack's wife, Mickey, ran through the council table with tears flowing down her cheeks, embraced her husband, who has languished in the county jail for five months. Yukon Jake lit a fresh cigar. The waddies from the gulch crowded forward and Blackjack, just a little stunned with the sadness of it all, suddenness of it all, clutched at the hands which were pushed at him for a shake. Then Blackjack hitched his trousers up a bit and turned to his wife. He swallowed a lump in his throat. Let's go, honey, he said. The show's all over now. Isn't that a beautiful ending? And like, apparently um, he was asked to sort of talk about the case on radio and give interviews and stuff. And he refused because he was like, I don't want any more drama in my life. I don't want to, I don't want to kind of disparage my friends in the in this business my, my movie cowboy friends any more than they already have been so i'm gonna shut up about it now i'm gonna kind of keep this cowboy code and um and yeah the show's the show's all over now and the show's all over for madeline um uh, you can find if, if you google a picture of mickey ward blackjack ward you'll find a picture of her i put it on instagram i hope we'll be able to put it in the in the paperback um and uh and yeah i'm just you know, uh, I think for research, it's good to know these stories never finish. This they never end. You know, like there's always more to know, and you never know when you're gonna, you're going to stumble across the right bit of paper that's going to help you join the dots up um, on on people from history. And and for me, for me, it was it was this it was this single kind of wedding 
registry and then and then the joining the dots up. Um, I also oh, I also checked by the way. I was trying to find out if um, if Blackjack had been tattooed um, when he was um, drafted uh, f- for World War Two. His physical characteristics, um, which were often listed, which were often where tattoos are listed, don't have any tattoos, but they do include uh, the brilliant gunshot in right groin. Other obvious physical characteristics that will aid in identification. Gunshot, gunshot in right groin. Yeah, that'll be distinctive. Um, yeah, um, I hope, like, I've become really fond of Madeline uh, over the years. I really have. Um I have a lot of, uh, I feel a lot of care for her. I feel very, I wish I, you know, I feel very pleased to have known her in this historical sense to have found more out about her. You know, she was well known in, in, in tattoo history. I didn't uncover her story because she'd been tattooed by Samuel O'Reilly. She's one of these people whose names comes up, comes up a lot. Um, but I don't think anyone until, till now has, has, has joined these dots up on her life story. And, um, I'm just so delighted that she didn't retire to the suburbs and, have a boring last chapter. So now I've got this out here. Um, hopefully, you know, we can get a movie made or something of her amazing life story. Cause what, what a life it was, what, what a beautiful, romantic, thrilling, sad life she lived. God bless you, Madeline. Um, and thank you all for listening. Um, uh, normal service will be resumed soon. We've got some great episodes coming up on the podcast. Um, so please keep tuned as always. Um, if you don't already subscribe, you can, um, on our Patreon, for as little as £5 a month. Um, if you subscribe at the £15 a month level, I will send you a signed copy of the book, um, plus postage and packing if you're outside the UK. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom, for editing this um, and uh, really being able to share these stories with, with people like yourselves is what makes me um, get out of bed in the morning. So thank you so much. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs>